Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week we have the privilege of discussing Osteoarthritis Economics 101. Now the economic burden due to osteoarthritis is massive and is the result of direct cost to the healthcare system, indirect cost to individuals living with the disease, and the intangible costs of living with a chronic disabling condition. Compared to age and sex match peers, osteoarthritis patients incur higher out-of-pocket health-related expenditures. People with osteoarthritis also incur substantial costs due to lost productivity, including both absenteeism, which is days off work, and presenteeism, which is reduced self-reported productivity at work. Now, as the burden of osteoarthritis rises globally, so too will the economic burden. And as a society, we spend a considerable portion of our health budget on osteoarthritis and the economic consequences in terms of underemployment, lost taxation, and poverty are immense. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to examine the economics of osteoarthritis from both an individual and a societal perspective, 
and to look at the cost effectiveness of various treatments. Particularly in our current economic climate, where the limitations of healthcare resources are prescient, it's really important to understand the burden of disease from the illness to the individual, to society, and also better understand rational treatment choices from their cost effectiveness, and particularly as it relates to disinvestment in low value care. To discuss and help us to understand this complex topic, we're joined by none other than Elena Lacina. And Professor Elena Lacina is the Robert W. Lovett Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and Biostatistics at Harvard Medical School. And she's an internationally recognized investigator in the epidemiology and outcomes of musculoskeletal disorders. She is a director of the Policy and Innovation Evaluation in Orthopedic Treatments Center and co-director of the Orthopedic and Arthritis Center for Outcomes Research, and is a principal investigator of the methodology core of the Robert Brigham Multidisciplinary Clinical Research Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Lacina has published over 460 peer-reviewed articles. She leads an NIH-funded multi-site project to conduct health policy evaluations related to surgical and non-surgical management of knee osteoarthritis. And she's recognized internationally for her expertise in melding rigorous clinical research methodologies across multiple clinical disciplines from orthopedics and osteoarthritis to global health. Elena, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have a chance to chat with you and I really, really appreciate your time in doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Now, it's um, a really interesting time. You're in the lead up to the first presidential debate over there. And so from both an economic and a health perspective, there's lots and lots happening around the world. Now, you're a really deep thinker, and I've had the privilege of interacting with you in many different ways over a number of years. But I still think there's a lot I can learn about you. And the first part of the show is I usually try and dig in and work out a little bit more about you, both for myself and for the listeners. But I'm wondering, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Okay, so data-driven, storyteller, mother, orange, and fun. Storyteller. Well, I hope, I hope we get a good story <laughs> out, of, out of this today. But from a professional perspective, can you tell me a little bit more about what you might do on a day-to-day basis? So I think, you know, the activities quite vary. They depend on what stage of the projects we're doing. We're conducting a few clinical studies. We are designing economic evaluations. And we spend a lot of time talking to clinicians because ultimately we would like to promote value-driven care and uh, how do we know what are the most pressing clinical issues? That's what we talk to clinicians, we talk to patients, and that's how we identify the critical questions that we are focused on addressing. And you, you do it really well, and I think you engage with a broad segment of clinicians and, and other people to, to gain that perspective, and I think you really meaningfully involve them as, as someone who's been involved in a number of those conversations over, over a long period of time. Now, it may be storytelling, it may be something else, but when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? Oh, that is quite 
quite rich. Uh, my recent hobby, I learned and totally enjoy baking artisan breads and French pastries. That takes a lot of time, but we need to do it with love. I love tandem biking with my husband. I like to read and I totally enjoy entertaining my family and friends, which is getting a little more complicated. It requires quite a lot of kind of creativity to keep at it these days. Yeah, I mean, I think with some of the social distancing, some of those social interactions have become a, a lot more complex and obviously hence our Zoom and inter other interactions have, have taken off. But the bread and pastry making, um, is that something you did before COVID or something that you just picked up during COVID? I think I actually started to, to, to bake bread about a year ago when one of our research assistants left and gifted me a beautiful book about bread making. And I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And that's turned into a wonderful hobby and my entire family enjoys it. And it's not that difficult. That's the, that's the key. A little <laughs> flour, a little salt, a little yeast, and a lot of love and some water. And you have bread. I'm sure you do it incredibly well, but it's, uh, it sounds like there's a number of people who picked up hobbies like that during lockdown and other things. Now, this is obviously an incredibly complex area, and it's one that you've been engaged in such a pivotal way for such a long period of time. But I guess what I want to do in the first instance is just get a better handle on uh, what it is that we're talking about and how big that magnitude of this is. So when we're talking about average direct healthcare costs for someone with osteoarthritis, what are those costs typically made up of? David, you ask a very, very good question, and it's important to recognize that the interpretation or the meaning of the question is very important. So what I would like to maybe start is to say is when we say cost, or when we use the term cost, different people have very different meanings, and even different researchers use very different matrix to estimate those costs. So the costs are sometimes being estimated or substituted by charges, payments, reimbursements. It's important who pays, whether it's a private insurer, whether it's a patient using his out-of-pocket dollars, or whether it's a government payer. And I think often when we uh, see the numbers, whether they are highlighted by media, whether we read it in scientific press, I think it's important to recognize and understand what those numbers mean. For example, I would like to touch on the very subtle but very useful distinctions. So when we talk about the cost incurred by patients with osteoarthritis, we need to distinguish two types of direct medical costs. Ones are directly related to the osteoarthritis pain, and another one are not directly to the OA pain. And uh, this is something people with away often have cardiovascular disease. They have some problems with their digestive systems. We know that people who have osteoarthritis often tend to be a little heavier, so they may have a higher chance of having diabetes. So people with osteoarthritis incur a variety of direct medical costs, and only a portion of them relates directly to osteoarthritis. So costs that relately, um, relate directly to osteoarthritis include cost of x-ray, for example, or cost of undergoing physical therapy, or cost of undergoing total knee replacement surgery. 
but people with osteoarthritis also come to visit their cardiologist and they have some cardiovascular procedures and they may have some stomach pain. And so when we talk about the cost in persons with osteoarthritis, what often happens is that we capture all costs related to healthcare of people who have osteoarthritis. And often researchers trying to capture or trying to distinguish between those two types of costs directly related to OA and overall costs, but that doesn't happen very often. And that's why it's really important to understand you know, what numbers are being quoted because of the such variety of methods um, that are being used and, and definitions and the data that are being used, then we see the direct medical cost not related to A can vary from about $1,000 US dollars to $8,000 for those people who don't have any comorbid conditions. And this is the kind of the lower level and they can go as high as about fourteen to $20,000 per year in people who have two to three comorbid conditions. Because of this complexity in capturing or mixing together costs directly related to osteoarthritis care and overall health in persons with osteoarthritis, we see a widespread of estimates which are capturing cost in persons with OA, and they vary from about $1,000 per year to $21,000 per year. So that's why if we really would like to focus on costs directly related to OA compared to overall cost in people with OA who receive medical care, the ratio is about 1 to 10. It's a loaded question, and I think the answer is it depends. Because the question is, is it the cost of osteoarthritis in kind of today's days? Is it the cost for one year? Is it the cost of the lifetime? So the cost of the lifetime of a person with knee osteoarthritis is about uh, $15,000. So it's about 14 millions of people with knee osteoarthritis in the United States. And if we multiply that, so we get about kind of $20 billion. So that's the, that's the approximation of cost. Yeah. So that was a really helpful preamble and explanation for a very complex area. And you mentioned that when we're thinking about costs, healthcare costs, some of those costs come directly out of a person's pocket. Approximately, what proportion of the expenditure relates to out-of-pocket expenditure? Again, very good question, and I feel that when people ask me what's, what's your favorite or most used answer that you give to people, unfortunately, it depends. And so it depends on what people are willing to do, because it depends whether people have what kind of health insurance and where they live. But most of the time, again, the pain-relieving medications with proven short-term effectiveness are relatively inexpensive and they can be purchased in pharmacies for relatively low cost. The challenge is that because they're not very, very effective over the long term, people are seeking, hungrily seeking some other means of relieving their pain. 
And in order to do this, they unfortunately using some unproven treatments that are being widely and happily advertised to them. They are different modes of um, uh, advertisement and communication. And those treatments usually offered with cash payments, and those payments can range from $1,000 to $10,000. So, and I think, of course, it depends whether patients are willing, whether they have the means, and whether they are believers. Understood. All right. So, it sounds, sounds like it's, it depends a little bit on their, on their context. Exactly. Now, with regards, obviously, the other aspect of the substantial costs related here that are separate from the direct healthcare costs there are these things called indirect costs. What are they? And on average, what do they amount to per person and to an economy such as the US? And again, I think given what you were saying before, I guess let's just try and focus on the osteoarthritis elements of it as distinct from other health conditions. That's a very important question because it's critical to understand the entirety of cost involved in managing chronic conditions such as osteoarthritis. And before we get to indirect cost, I would like just to list all the costs that sometimes we do think and sometimes we don't necessarily think about related to uh, the presence of the disease or the burden of the disease. So we talked already about direct medical costs. These are the costs that directly relate to treatment. So this is seeing a doctor, paying for a visit to a doctor, receiving x-ray, receiving a surgery. It's important to recognize there is another sort of cost that, is, that are called direct non-medical costs. So these costs are also maybe non-trivial. Travel to the hospital, somebody who lives in rural areas and is interested to undergo total knee replacement, for example, they may to undertake a trip to a regional center they may bring somebody with them and they will incur much bigger costs. So the direct non-medical cost also a component of cost. And then there are indirect or time costs. These are the costs related to reduced productivity and they can be stratified in two groups. One is, uh, I think David, you mentioned this, is presentees when people with osteoarthritis come to work but cannot work as productively as they otherwise would be if they would not experience some joint pain. And absenteeism, where they need to miss the work because of their osteoarthritis. Both of them are non-trivial. And one of the key reasons for that is because it has been shown, there is a large evidence that occupational exposure is one of the risk factors for osteoarthritis. So people who are involved in manual laborers may have a higher risk of getting osteoarthritis. And because they, their work is so related to use of their joints, that this indirect costs have a particular high toll in person with osteoarthritis because they either need to move to another occupation or to try to do different activity and it has impact on their earnings and it has impact on their well-being. In terms of what's the variability of cost, we also need to recognize that osteoarthritis, it used to hit people often when they already retired in their mid 60s, 70s and older, and now it's being diagnosed at younger ages. 
And so more and more people are diagnosed with osteoarthritis while still being in a workforce. And so estimated annual time cost or indirect cost for persons with osteoarthritis after we account for the fact that only 60% of them are in the workforce, it's about $1,400 per year in US dollars. And this number is increasing greatly if we take into consideration the year when persons with osteoarthritis decide to undergo joint replacement. In that year, these indirect costs increase about fivefold. And again, similar to what you did with the direct healthcare costs, if we talk about the number of people that are affected, presumably we can then compute the total cost to the US. And would that number still be about 40 million people? So again, I think, you know, right now in the United States, for example, there is about 700,000 total new replacements are being done on an annual basis. So if you multiply it by about $7,000, so that will give an estimate of the indirect cost at the year of the, and related to the receiving total new replacement. And if we take this overall people with neoosteoarthritis and get it multiplied by $1,000, we are getting to, again, billions very, very quickly. Numbers add up and being multiplied because of the very high prevalence. It's a very frequently occurring. Now, one element that you've done for many years and have worldwide recognition is that of cost-effectiveness analysis. And it's an area where it's particularly employed to, I guess, the, the limited healthcare resources and budgets uh, that we are constrained by. And so in that context, economic evaluations are critical to understand the merits of different management strategies. And one particular approach, as mentioned, is the cost-effectiveness evaluation. Now, can you briefly explain what these are and particularly focus on, I guess, some of the terminology that you might use and some of the subsequent questions I might ask? Yes, this is, thank you, this is very important because uh, we have so many misperceptions related to cost-effectiveness analysis and unfortunately because of mis misperceptions um, and, you know, this methodology is not used as frequently and as often in health policy decisions as we hope it would be. Again, in some settings, in some countries, it's being used more frequently and in others, unfortunately, not as often. So what is cost-effectiveness analysis? As you, David, just um, stated, we, whether we like it or not, we do live in the era of limited resources. And because resources are limited, we need to figure out how to use them. And so cost-effectiveness analysis combines two outcomes. One's related to health benefits and another one related to costs. And so health benefits in cost-effectiveness analysis often expressed in quality-adjusted life years. Why is it so important to do quality adjustment? There are some diseases such as cancer lead to premature mortality. And so treating cancer extends life. Some other diseases such as osteoarthritis do not directly affect the length of life, although more recent evidence suggests that it might through limiting mobility but most of the time it limits uh, and affects the quality of life, the joy that people have by you know, waking up every day and doing activities that they like. And so that's why it's important in order to understand for the society, for the peers, 
how to distribute those resources that are dedicated for healthcare, it's important to recognize those two components, the duration of life and quality of life. So cost-effectiveness analysis does exactly that. The key feature or the key matrix of such analysis is determined by incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, which is the ratio uh, that compares the differential cost between two strategies, two treatment strategies, and the differential impact on quality-adjusted life expectancy. The beauty of this analysis is that it can be compared, this matrix can be compared across different diseases, different areas. And so if we need to prioritize high-value care versus low-value care versus no-value care, I think we can do it across different conditions. Let me spend perhaps one more minute to define this high-value care, low-value care, and no-value care. And high-value care is the then when we're spending not a lot of money for getting a lot of benefits. And that kind of no a lot of money is defined by so-called willingness to pay threshold. The low value care is when we spend a lot of money and receive very little benefits. And that is important to identify that type of care because we can address it in two ways. We either can think whether we can reduce the cost and turn the low-value care into high-value care, and we can discuss and decide whether it's worth paying for such care. And no-value care is the care where we're spending a lot of money, but unfortunately do not get any benefits, and that care should not be implemented. But the only way to even divide care or different interventions that we now use is to perform the formal cost-effectiveness analysis for health that will help such stratification. That's brilliant. Thanks, Elena. And that will really be a helpful context for some of the, the questions that come after that. Now, you've been leading, and I've had the privilege of working with you on a project to conduct health policy evaluations for both surgical and non-surgical uh, management of knee osteoarthritis, and have done a number of evaluations looking at the cost effectiveness of a range of those strategies. This is a really unfair question. <laughs> because it's packaging years and years of work into one question. But of those, which are cost-effective and which are not? So I think the strategies that incorporate physical activity and weight, weight loss in people with osteoarthritis, particularly with osteoarthritis of the knee, are very cost-effective. Total joint replacement is very cost-effective. Opioids are not at all cost-effective. In fact, they are not even low-value care the, uh, using opioids for osteoarthritis care from the policy decisions. This is a no-value care. Brilliant. That's a very, very great summary of years, years and years of work that you've been doing there. But how is that influencing policy and how are you disseminating the results that you've got from those great range of studies to increase the impact of what you do? This is a very important question and we're spending quite a bit of time thinking of the ways of how to do it better. As scientists, we have one traditional way of disseminating our research. We conduct our investigations, we publish them in the scientific journals, and we hope that that's the way to uh, providing the evidence. The work that we do on cost effectiveness 
often is being picked uh, up by the treatment guidelines in osteoarthritis specifically. So that helps to establish the guidelines that you know, treatment hopefully defines standard of care. Another way to disseminate work is to present work in scientific and non-scientific meetings. And you know, I'm trying to use every opportunity. And then more recently, it's the social media. I think you know, we are exploring and having fun with Twitter. And that's how the research is being propagated. And hopefully, that's how people will know about it. And that's how policymakers will take a note and hopefully make the determination of what is high value and what is no value care. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so important because I think, as you say, historically, a lot of researchers really have limited themselves to the submission of a manuscript and publication in a journal rather than necessarily thinking about getting that message out there. Now, in some really pivotal work that you've done with Haxby Abbott in New Zealand, you've looked at a number of factors that I think are really illuminating when thinking about the burden of this disease. One is about the average mean health loss over a person's lifetime. Um, and then another parameter which you've done some work on there is the proportion of quality adjusted life years lost out of a total quality adjusted life expectancy in a person that's got knee osteoarthritis. So just wonder if you wanna just briefly explain those very complex concepts um, and then just give us some estimates as to what that was for, at least in New Zealand. So quality adjusted life here is a matrix that defines a year spent in perfect health, whatever the definition of perfect each of us has. The challenge is that people with chronic conditions such as osteoarthritis obviously cannot say that their health is perfect. And so they are discount or they, they use some factor that would say, you know, the year spent with osteoarthritis obviously is not as good as the year spent in uh, perfect health. And this, the question is how much worse it is. A few years ago, I found a very um, surprising to me data suggesting that people with severe osteoarthritis, their quality of life is similar for the to people with stage four breast cancer. And it's taking both emotional component and physical component. And so people who live with severe osteoarthritis, their quality of life is equivalent to about 0.65 of the year of life in perfect health. And so when you multiply this or take into consideration that osteoarthritis is a chronic conditions that, and people live with it, for over two decades. So that's basically uh, accounts for the fact that there is a lot of losses in quality adjusted life years. So we did analysis in the United States trying to estimate how much osteoarthritis contributes to quality adjusted life losses. And we estimated that people with osteoarthritis and or obesity lose between 10 and 25% of the remaining quality adjusted uh, life expectancy. And when we conducted similar analysis in New Zealand, we came up with similar magnitude of about 23%. Yeah, that's a really jarring statistic. And I think potentially brings home the importance of appropriate management I and mean, getting, getting well treated. Um, and also, I guess, underpins the importance of developing new and effective therapies. Now, like many other non-communicable diseases like diabetes and, and heart disease, 
social determinants play a really important role in the etiology of osteoarthritis. And inequities and disparities in particular are prevalent both in determining the development of disease and the care that's received. How can economic analyses assist in more appropriate apportioning of care, particularly when one takes into account the costs of delaying or foregoing treatment in people who are less well-off or from um, a disparate group, and also the impact that would have on their labour market productivity? That's a good question. Again, the cost-effectiveness and economic evaluation is a policy, most of the time it addresses policy-based questions, but we would like to use the methodology that we're using for cost-effectiveness analysis and thinks about the ways to inform and educate people who perhaps do not understand or appreciate the value of certain procedures, certain treatment modalities. One example is total knee replacement. There is a substantial body of evidence suggesting that in the United States, Hispanics and African-American people, you know, usually do not undergo total knee replacement with the same rates as Caucasian patients with knee osteoarthritis. And a lot of it may be cultural, a lot of it may be understanding, a lot of it may be access to care. And so the challenge is how do you help to not only respect the preferences, because we would like to respect the preferences, but also help people to understand the detriments in their health that they're taking. And one way of doing this is to present information in a way that is being perceived as uh, useful and meaningful to a person who are affected by the condition. So that's why the quality adjusted years that may be lost if somebody would prefer not to have knee replacement compared to taking knee replacement, I think is one of the matrix that helps to bring the value of certain treatment closer to patients. I think that's how the, some of the matrix and cost-effectiveness analysis could be used to reduce disparities and inform the preferences. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And I think it's obviously depends a lot on context and the, the nature of the healthcare system and whether a person has insurance or whether there's universal coverage. And obviously also speaks a lot to the disparities that are pervasive in, in many communities that influence health and healthcare. Now, some interesting analyses have been done relatively recently, looking specifically at the impact of arthritis in general, that at least it has on average weekly income and the likelihood of a person being in poverty. I'm just wondering whether you'd want to comment on that at all. Yes, this is an important question. And again, very multifaceted because people are suffering from osteoarthritis often in their second part of life, and some of them already out of workforce. The challenging part in trying to estimate the impact of osteoarthritis on the wages and the income loss is again so complex that I would not be willing to come up with a single number. And again, the challenge is related to what is the occupation of people who are suffering by osteoarthritis. And because it's more likely to affect people in manual labor and in construction worker, that may, um, depending on where they work, you know, they may or may not be the highest paid employees. So it may be perceived that if you multiply the number of people who 
needed to take earlier retirement or would lose the income due to osteoarthritis, because of the average pay per hour, it may not be as high as if you would do it for, for uh, physicians or computer scientists. But I think it's important to recognize it's not just the total number or the global economic burden. Each person is an individual who has a family, who has some aspirations and some ways to live. And I think, you know, if having osteoarthritis bring them closer to poverty, this is an issue that needs to be taken into consideration very, very clearly. And we need to understand if somebody is getting away as a part of the occupational exposure, maybe we need to consider some of the social problems that would help them to alleviate the economic impact on their health and on their family. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think really, I guess, just to emphasize that the frequency of the disease and the number of people who are disabled and out of work as a consequence of the disease have has massive financial implications for economies around the world, both in terms of reductions in weekly income, the likelihood of a person being in poverty and reductions in both retirement income and savings, as well as taxation revenue. So it's, it has a massive economic impact. Now, you alluded to this a little bit before, and it obviously varies by country, but for a lot of countries, they do take into account cost effectiveness as part of the regulatory approval process. And historically, a lot of guidelines, you know, when I reflect on this for osteoarthritis um, in general, a lot of guidelines pay no attention to the cost effectiveness of, of drugs and really just focus on efficacy and safety. I'm just wondering whether you think cost effectiveness should be considered as part of guidelines. I think absolutely. But again, I'm a biased person because I kind of do this kind of research. And I think the reason why is it important, because that's the way that we can distinguish high and low value care. And I think as a society, our overall health will be improved if we will focus and promote high volume care and try to really low the use of the low volume value care. I, unfortunately, over many, many, many years, physicians were staying shy of considering costs because I think you know, the goal of physician is to improve lives at whatever cost. And I think what is the important to recognize that if we're going to spend a lot of resources in low value care, we just won't have money to spend on new evolving treatment that you know, would be highly efficacious, but likely to be costly. And so in order to incorporate that opportunity cost, we need to really work through the therapies that and treatments modalities that are really not worth using. And cost effectiveness analysis helps to, helps to delineate that. That's wonderful and really helpful explanation. And I think a helpful prelude to the, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is just this concept of disinvestment in low value care options and potentially reapportioning that to more appropriate care. Are there any particular targets that you would highlight where we should be disinvesting in low value care? You mentioned opioids before, but there may be others like arthroscopy. Opioids, I would say that would be the, the most important component because I think opioids, while is being perceived by some patients and some physicians who tried many different options, and that's the only way to alleviate pain, I think it's important to 
again, educate and provide information. And then I think physicians and patients should choose, but choose it based on the proper evidence. With respect to arthroscopy, I think this is a big discussion and probably would require a special issue because there is a lot of interesting data that are coming. I think nobody is saying that arthroscopy should be used for treatment of osteoarthritis. And I think there is a lot of evidence that is evolving. And I think we see the decrease of use of the procedure as the uh, result of that evidence. But again, I wouldn't go as far as to say that arthroscopy should not be used because there are specific groups of patients where it can provide some temporary relief that could be perceived as important. All right. What we might do is get you back for that arthroscopy conversation for, <laughs> on another day because, as you, as you suggest, it's probably a little bit more complicated than just one throwaway line from me. In the interests of um, me having not managed this time particularly well, are there any patient-friendly resources or links that might shed further light on this topic or anything that I should have asked that I forgot to? I think the CDC website in the United States provides quite a bit of very good information, Arthritis Foundation, and I'm sure that there is Arthritis Foundation uh, analogous in Australia and in other countries. I think this is usually patient-driven very good information that helps to highlight important interventions. But I think what we all recognize and learn more and more that there is no single magic pill which, that will alleviate um, pain from osteoarthritis. It requires work, it requires work on a patient, and it requires the shared decision-making. And what is very important is that physical activity, weight loss, those the interventions that have been over and over proven very effective and cost effective. That's really helpful. Now, in the interest of getting you home so you can uh, watch Trump v. Biden in the first uh, presidential debate, I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? That's a very good question. So I think because I feel that this is the ways to make a difference in people's lives, because by promoting highway care, we can help to readjust the spending of resources and educate people and provide them with metrics, hopefully that are meaningful to them, that they will start helping themselves. As I said, there is no magic pill. We need to uh, identify a combination of medical treatments, behavioral treatments, surgical treatments, and doing this as a multidisciplinary groups with physicians, with methodologists like I am, and with behavioral scientists, I think that's the way. The goal is to make people feel better and do not perceive that osteoarthritis is inevitable part of aging. I think people can live through this. I think they can enjoy life. And I think our job is to help them to do so. Wonderful. Well, I hope you maintain the motivation and enthusiasm because you make a, a huge difference for the field. And uh, I know for people who are out there, provide a lot of information that's incredibly valuable. Now, just in closing, is there one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? I think that this is a very old but very relevant advice. Physical activity saves lives, improves lives, and alleviates pain. So we shall all do whatever we can and more to be more physically active. 
Elena, thank you so much. It's wonderful to have a chance to spend some time with you and really appreciate the time that you've dedicated to have a chat to me about this. Greatly appreciate it. You're very welcome. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, David. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.